Section 32 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 5, Part 2. 5. To her delight, it was just as she remembered it a little smaller, perhaps, as the station had been, but otherwise unchanged. The single, wide street still straggled unevenly downhill, keeping many levels in one width of its close-set cobbles. And there, perched on its mound at the top of the village, was Tweedy's, the post office and principal shop. It, too, looked the same as it had always looked. The same stiff bunches of boots and breeches stuck out from its dark doorway the same smell of cheese and porpoise bootlaces, paraffin and bacon came forth from it. Not before she entered, and Joanna did enter, for in Tweedy she knew she would learn whatever was to be known of Duntavi and its present owners, would she have discovered that old sandy-haired Tweedy was dead, and that young sandy-haired Tweedy, already a bald-headed man, was the master. But this was as nothing to the news of Duntavi that she brought with her out of that cavern of boots and breeches. During the last eighteen years, Tweedy had said, the house had changed hands many times. It had been found too solitary for domestic use, too cold in the winter for the poultry-keeping attempted by one tenant. The soil was too poor to make the place profitable for the ordinary farmer. So for some years it had stood empty, till six months ago, it had been taken over by the parish authorities. Now it was used for housing old and mindless paupers. There they might indulge in their feeble antics in the sunshine without distressing their fellows. Here was a change to be faced. Joanna, however, recovered her serenity as she stood a while outside and surveyed the basking village. If Duntarvi House, she reminded herself, had become a place of sadness, there was still the moor the burn, the upper pond, and what were the mere four walls compared with these in her memory. Save for its inmates, who were quiet and never strayed beyond the lawn, Tweedy had assured her that the place was quite unchanged. After all, perhaps a few poor old lunatics were less hateful as tenants than would have been some strenuous family who would rebuild the steadings, or some speculative farmer who would divide the moor into hen-runs. She ate in the village, also buying food to take with her, so that she might be free for her next meal. Then, leaving the main road by a rough old shortcut that was more like the dry bed of a stream than a path, she set out. It was late in the afternoon when she gained a track that ran thread-like high up around the flank of a hill, and still she was but halfway to her destination. But she would not hurry. She was kept loitering, partly perhaps by some dread of what might await her, but much more by the quiet new vitality which seemed to well, more and more sweetly, more and more surely, in her with every step. How still it was, almost sombre, in the strong late sunshine. The birds did not sing, the larger ones only called and called to one another, while the smaller, brown dunnocks, green and yellow siskins, finches and linnets of every variety, fluttered silently from bush to bush, or twittered vigilantly in the undergrowth. The leafage everywhere was of that dark, lacklustre green, which is as different from the green firs of spring as from the flaming red and yellow of later autumn. 
Yet was that mighty business of scattering, of which the scarlet banners of October only mark the end, already well on its way. Lying with her eyes shut among the bushes of broom and whin, Joanna heard all around her the tiny, sharp reverberations of pods splitting in the blessed heat. Opening her eyes, she saw a thousand acorns pushing out their blunt and glossy noses from beneath the dark foliage. She espied a million winged fruits, which from having long hung aimlessly upon the parent boughs, now lifted themselves in swarms, ready with every pinion spread for the wind. She held in her wandering fingers the purple-black riven pods that disclosed each one a row of ebony seeds embedded in silvery silken down. Fir cones that were now no more than empty hives lay everywhere around her. Others, untimely fallen, would never yield up their fruits, but would sink tightly clenched into dissolution. The whole earth was strewn with the signs and wonders, the triumphs and the vast wastage of the year's fulfilment. Even in the sun's decline it was hot, and Joanna, finding a knee-deep pool in the stream, all overgrown at that part, with elder and rowan trees, and hazels rich with nut clusters, stripped herself and bathed. With its pale, sandy bottom and moss-covered stones, and its little brown fall that gushed from above, it made a lovely bath. Half sitting, half lying in it, the young woman let the water splash upon her shoulders, and run in a rivulet between her breasts. For some minutes she stayed there, watching the flecks of sunshine move among the rippled pebbles. Then, feeling fresh to the heart, she regained the main road and went more steadily on her way. Duntarvi lay two miles farther on, still uphill, at the end of its own steep and rocky road, which being tree-embowered for the last fifty yards or so, had always been known to the children as the avenue. Emerging from there to the open space before the house, Joanna stopped and sadly looked. It was more forlorn than she had expected. Yet she was comforted also, for a faint wisp of smoke rising from the kitchen chimney and some hens that picked about the scratched grass behind sagging palings were the only signs of human habitation. She had dreaded the sight of strangers on the lawn. Slowly, and with some backward looks, she passed on. She crossed to where the hunched-up red and grey steading seemed to have settled so deeply into the earth as to have become one with it, stooped below the iron girders of the mill-shaft, to which no horse had been harnessed these fifty years and more, and skirting the shrunken lower pond, began to climb the slope beyond among the beech-trees. Nothing suffers more from human abuse than water, and when Joanna had seen the well, covered with broken boards and nettles, and the pond, with its stream half-choked and its banks a wide margin of mud, she trembled for the heron's pool, which supplied the house from the summit of the hill behind. There, however, she must go that night. The moor could wait till the morning. She would cross it on her way to Ochtamachti. On her reaching the place, it seemed at first as if her worst fears were to be realised, and her heart sank heavily. Here were the trees, all standing round on guard as she remembered them. There was no touch of spoliation anywhere. But in the cup below her, she could see only unbroken greenness. Where was the water she had so loved? The water that had figured all these years as a kind of shrouded symbol in her life? Had it disappeared, or had it never been? 
Then, even as she looked, a breeze came running through the trees at her back and stirred the rushes, and the pale green evening sky discovered for her, as if by a spoken word, the living glitter of waters. There it was. There was its perfect circle as of old. There was the living, undespoilable spring that had been set here to spill and spill forever from its far-hidden source in the earth. So, after all, one need not despair. Joanna remembered how, when her life had lain broken within her, the water had sung to her from its tank in the Edinburgh Hotel bedroom, and it was this now silent, almost hidden water that had made hopeful music for her when she lay a child in bed in the house below. If I forget thee, may my right hand forget its cunning. That had been the vague but fervent exclamation of her childhood in this spot. Indeed she had forgotten. All these years, in her striving for the world, in her keeping Lewis Pender as her centre of energy, with the whole force of her wits and her strongly disciplined will, she had been madly oblivious to the sweet hint vouchsafed to her in childhood. She had forgotten, because she had never truly understood. And so it was good to have forgotten. One had to forget first. One had first to expend and lose utterly all the disastrous cunning of one's right hand, before one could at last simply be as one was meant to be. Here surely was the new birth. Why it should have to come by such a widely circling and deathly route. Why so much pain and wastage should intervene before one could start fair was a vain question. Enough that for her at any rate there could have been no other way. She could look back now, without regret or sadness, to the beginning, when her life had been as a seed enfolded in a double mesh of desire. On desire her life had fed these many years, imprisoned but ripening. A long agony it had been, for she had never known to which desire she must be given, to the desire of sacrifice or to the desire of pride. Each had asserted its sole claim, each had denied that the other had any right in her. And so she had turned from one to the other in a torture of ignorance and indecision. Only now that both had fallen away, outworn, did she come by the steady knowledge that both had been needed, that in the following of one alone there would have been sterility. Why then regret? That period of life, conscious and striving but blind, was past. She was free of it, in knowing she could not have been free without it. Now her absolved self had its birth. No moon rose behind the low, straight band of cloud that girdled the horizon, but the sky had become a dark, belted cupola of stars. Joanna wandered through forest clearings and across the open country where the dew-slippery grass showed like a grey web among the black bushes of whin and heather. She sat on a high stone dyke, ate some biscuits and raisins, and wondered where she should sleep. The idea of sleep came suddenly overpowering, but it was too wet to lie in the open, and she could not bring herself to knock at the doors of Duntarvi. Here and there in the distance from her high perch she could see the tiny lights of farmhouses, but none seemed within a mile of her, and she felt too tired to go so far. She bethought herself of the steading below, and went back there quickly. 
her desire to throw herself down in some dry, dark place and sleep, grew upon her with every step. The barn was locked. She could hear the sleepy rustling and fluffing and clucking of the enviable fowls inside. So was the old byre door locked. But to her joy, the latch of what in her childhood had been the stable yielded under her thumb. It was dark inside, for there were only a few small panes of cobwebbed glass among the tiles of the roof. But she groped about and soon found her bearings. Clearly the place was used by the present owners as a buyer, for there was no mistaking the warm, sweet redolence of cows, and these were no horses that sighed and snuffled in the two stalls. Joanna's relief was all the greater when she stumbled up against the old stable bin in its accustomed place, standing a little way out from the wall so that the lid could be propped upright. Best of all, it was full to within a foot of the top with some kind of chaff mixture. It was a great metal box, long as a coffin and far deeper, and saving that it was rather narrow, a better bed could hardly have been found. Throwing off her hat and shoes and spreading her short coat over her as a cover, Joanna climbed in. The chaff yielded comfortably to her hips and shoulders. In five minutes she was asleep. She slept fitfully, however, being straightened for room, and woke again and again to long, albeit peacefully enough, for the morning. Her deepest bout of sleep was the last, which carried her far past dawn, and she sat up half in fear to the long-drawn pipe of a starling on the chimney outside. Fine as the bird's whistle, a golden rapier of sunlight lay across her body in the corn bin. She looked at her watch. Six o'clock, so late. The wonder was that no one had come from the house yet to see to the cows. She felt ravenous. When she had put on her shoes, shaken her clothes free of the chaff bedding, and gone out into the pearly morning, she could see no sign of anyone stirring. Her good fortune seemed assured, by the kitchen blinds being still drawn, so hastening back to the byre, she laid hold of a metal dipper which had been in the bin, and with soothing words she approached one of the cows. To her relief, the beast looked round at her, mildly wrinkling a velvety neck, and did not low. Joanna's experience of milking was limited to a few half-playful lessons in childhood, in this very building, and she was unsure of herself, but she crouched down resolutely and grasped the two near teats. So, 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 so. One must go on tugging firmly, and with a fearless rhythm, that she knew. She laughed as two sudden hard white spurts came sideways at her like arrows, striking warm to her knees through her woollen skirts, and thence dribbling to the ground. Soon the milk was coming bravely. The only difficulty now was to direct it from the slippery teats into a small and awkwardly shaped vessel beneath. For once that the criss-cross darts went hissing into the dipper, they would three times slither over the byre floor, blackening the cobbles, forming small white pools upon the hard earth between, or driving skewer-like into the soft round heaps of cow dung. But Joanna persevered, and by the time she was warm through and through, and her fingers cramped with clinging to the heavy, freckled udder, there was a good cupful for her breakfast. Splendid it was, too, clover fresh and sweet and warm, and with the last of the biscuits it stayed immediate hunger. The next minute she was out in the sunshine. She crossed the stream at a bound, 
climbed over the squeaking wire fence, and were straightway on the old moor. The morning, for its freshness, might have been the first of creation. Small, gleeful birds whistled in the winds, which were bound each to each by a thousand radiant spiders' webs, and Joanna, as she broke through them, loving what she must destroy, stooped to pick handfuls of bloom-grey blayberries. She could still hear the strange, long, satisfied cries of the starlings on the steading roof, and magpies and warps went circling and calling in the further fields. A lark flew up voiceless from her feet, a weasel darted behind a boulder. As she got higher, she saw that the greater part of the moor was now a plantation of baby pines and firs and larches. In ten years' time, it would be a moor no longer, but a forest. As yet, however, the little sturdy conifers, few of them over two feet in height, had not interfered with the heather, the high-growing blaeberry plants, or the tufts of long, needle-like grass interspersed with clumps of wild thyme which lay between. It was happiness just to pass between these young trees that sprang everywhere with such delicate, balanced strength, and were so dew-covered and innocent. Already the moisture was being sucked up so swiftly by the sun that it could almost be felt flying skywards in an ecstasy. And when, after some wandering, Joanna came to the corner she sought, she found the ground almost dry. Here at the boundary of the moor, where dark old woods lay beyond the lichen-covered paling, the hollow of grass and heather received the sun as if in a chalice. Choosing a springy tussock of heather near some rocks, she sat herself down in great contentment to wonder what she should do next. It was still too early to start for Ochtermuchti. To Duntavi House, with its forbidding decrepitude, she would not return. She began to trifle with the idea of making Drumwarry Farm away to the south. Perhaps they would give her breakfast there before she went on her way over the Fife border. Surely at Drumwarry there would still be someone who remembered the Bannermans. To Drumwarry she would go. Presently, that was. Not quite yet. The sun was indeed getting at her in this sheltered cup. It was getting her most gratefully at her very marrow and now a drowsiness swam along her limbs and drew her film after film over her eyelids. She had slept in the corn bin, but not enough for her need. Now her eyelids fell, and her head sank toward one shoulder. Her last conscious movement, before yielding utterly, was a pushing, an insinuating of herself as far into the bush of heather as she could get. With a comfortable sigh she settled yet more deeply. On all sides she was supported by the springy stems, yet she was so far sunken out of sight that the warm, rustling flowers nearly met over her. When she was awakened by the abrupt cuck, cuck of a cock pheasant quite close to her ear, it was in her firm belief that she had slept but a few minutes. Yet it was past ten by her watch, and the sun had mounted high in the sky. Had it not been for the shade of a larch bough, its rays must have beat her eyes open long ere then. As she rose, stretching herself, leaving such a deep impression of her body in the heather that it would be days before the fine grey thongs would stand again upright, the cock-pheasant stalked out of sight. His gait declared that he was prudent, but that he refused to be hurried. Two young rabbits nibbling near the fence were less careful for their dignity. 
Perching on a boulder higher up, Joanna shaded her eyes and searched toward the south for a sign of drum worry. It was with a touch of incredulity that she recognised, well within a mile of where she stood, the dark slate gables and the high old smoke stalk, which in childhood had seemed a day's journey across the steeply curving hillsides. She was about to descend from her rock, facing a little the other way to avoid the sun in her eyes, when something made her gather herself back into intent, balanced stillness. Away on the moor, a jerkily moving object caught the sunlight. It was the bare, black head of a man, who was otherwise hidden by rising ground and winds. It moved along quickly, sometimes bobbing up and down as its owner ran a few steps or leapt over the knots of heather, sometimes disappearing completely behind a hillock, but always widening the distance between itself and her. Now it had gone, and Joanna watched for its reappearance with a feeling in her heart different from anything she had ever known before. Now it came again into sight, followed rapidly by the shoulders and the man's whole body, as he mounted a little hill, perhaps two hundred yards away. She knew then, beyond all doubt, that it was Lawrence, and no other, that was here on the moor with her, and it was only then that she was pierced through and through by the clue of her own new-born life, clear as the starling's whistle, piercing as the first ray of the morning. She knew her happiness, and hailed it. But he had not seen her. He did not know. He was not even looking for her. As fast as he could, he was walking away and away. Soon, in a moment, he would be gone. He must not go. Every thought, every desire, every invigorated cell of Joanna's renewed body leapt on the instant in unison with this declaration of her spirit. Lawrence must not go. She must stop him. She had never known anything as she knew this. She had never experienced living knowledge till now. Lawrence, too, must be pierced with this new, dazzling ray of knowledge, or there would remain only darkness. She started running at top speed. First she went pelting down her hillock, losing all sight of him, then zigzagging like a hare along the clear passage of grass that wound pale yellow between the winds, and springing over the sapling pines, she breasted the longer hill in front. She could see him again now. If only he would turn round. But no. He stared sometimes a little to the right or to the left, but never turned his face enough for any movement from behind to catch his eye. And not once did he glance back. What breeze there was on these heights was contrary, and so would prevent the sound of her running from reaching him till she should come up close. Once or twice she thought she could hear that he whistled to himself as he walked. He looked young and carefree, with his coat off and thrown over one shoulder, and though the breath was failing her, a spendthrift laugh escaped her when she saw him go flying over a particularly wide obstacle of rock and heather. She had reached the top of the second hillock between them, he meanwhile climbing also, when her plight began to seem desperate. The last push-up hill had made her breathing fearfully ragged, and she had reached the top just in time to avoid falling. She realised also, what she had not grasped before, that her task was not merely to cover the stretch of uneven ground between herself and Lawrence, but to overtake him as well. If she could not gain seriously on him by the next plunge downhill, and across the intervening shallow dip, before he was again descending at a helter-skelter pace, she was done. 
she was lost. She would have to sink mute upon the earth while he would go on whistling and unknowing. It was too late to attract his attention by calling. Even if she had tried to shout earlier, with the wind as it was, it would most likely have been mere waste of precious breath. Precious breath indeed. Now it was too late for the weakest cheep of a hoy, hoy. She would soon have no breath left for anything, not even for survival. She plunged down the hill, not zigzagging now, but jumping and stumbling straight forward, sometimes falling on her hands and knees. The braid of her skirt was torn into festoons, and her knees trembled shockingly. It was even worse going downhill than up. But she went on, and across the amber-coloured dip which was full of quivering air. Only twice before in her life had she run so. Once it had been up the Glasgow hill to her first meeting with Lewis, under the dread that he would be gone, and once it had been along the winding shore road to the west coast village where her mother lay dying. She remembered these times now, once for love, once for death. Her blood took up the refrain with its bursting throbs, once for love, once for death. This time, for life. It was life that she ran for now. Life. Few there be that find it. Life. That for her Lawrence held in his keeping, and was carrying swiftly away. Again she had lost sight of him, and the knowledge that as she was crawling up this next slippery hill, he was going pell-mell downwards, nearly killed her. She uttered his name now in gasping, voiceless breaths, though she knew it was worse than useless. But she could not refrain. If only he would stop for one moment. To die with one last short breath on his breast would be better than to recover in solitude. There was no real recovery for her but on his breast. If she fell short of him, her heart would break. It was breaking now. She had to keep her hand pressed over it. Why did he go so fast and never stop? The fury of anger against him ran parallel with her desire. She loved him, needed him, hated him all at once. With the tears pouring down her scarlet cheeks and all her features convulsed like a frantic lost child's, she got somehow over the brow of the hill and looked for him. He had stopped. He had turned round. She heard him shout, saw him come running towards her, and she tried to raise her arm in a signal. Though she was saved, she could not have stopped running now, not if she had known the next stop to be her last. But soon they were only a few paces apart, and Lawrence, becoming suddenly unsure, stood still. He uttered some inarticulate sounds of question and welcome, but knew that he must wait for her. There was a treacherous looped root of heather in the turf between them, and Joanna was no longer able to lift her feet, nor to look where she was going. With her eyes on Lawrence's face, she tripped badly on the root, and as he darted forward to save her, she pitched forward right upon his breast. For what to both seemed a long time, no word was spoken. Joanna clearly was quite unfit for speech. Her breath came and went in painful, sobbing gasps, do what she would to allay it, and her tumultuous heartbeats shook her body through and through. As for Lawrence, silence was his better part. He could only hold his love to him in fearful happiness. But as soon as she began to draw away from him, he let her go. Still she panted. Her hair was fallen in a lump on one shoulder. Her moist face, 
blazed like heather flowers in September sunshine after a rain shower. She groped in her skirts and in her bosom. I must have lost my handkerchief. Lawrence pulled out his, a comfortable male square of linen, and put it in her hand. Thank you, she murmured fervently, and when her face was a little comforted, she added seriously, I ran after you. Lawrence threw back his head and laughed to the sky. You did that, he replied when he could speak. Then, see, sit down here, he went on, as if he were coaxing some panicky animal. Here's a good seat. Take your time. You must have run ever so far to get yourself in such a state. Why didn't you shout to me? The wind was against me. Then my breath was gone, said Joanna. She was recovering, but still had to heave great sighs, and she pressed her hands to her flaming cheeks. Rest a bit, urged Lawrence as she tried to rise. Could you drink some cold coffee? I have some here, see. He knelt beside her, unfastening his rucksack, while Joanna tried to twist up her hair. All my hairpins are gone, she complained. I'm afraid I can't help you there. No, I shall just have to plait it. With practised fingers that seemed to her companion to accomplish a miracle of skilfulness, she made a long braid of her hair and doubled it up under her soft hat. I think I'll never be cool again. Not up here, certainly, agreed Lawrence. Shall we go down among these trees? There should surely be a burn there. She nodded. There is. My burn. Let's go. And she scrambled to her feet. But first here's your coffee, he said, giving her a cup, and she drank gratefully. As she handed him back the empty cup, their eyes met, and it was as if each now saw the other for the first time. Only now did Joanna clearly note the marks of his recent illness in his face, but it was no more this that kept her eyes so long upon his than it was her morning freshness that made Lawrence gaze on her as if he could never look elsewhere. Never before had their primary flames of being leapt up so nakedly, and they were full of recognition, each for the other. There on the moor, that vibrated with noonday, he was Adam to her Eve. There among the broom brushes, whereupon the dark seed pods went crack cracking in the strong sunshine, the past was shed from both of them like a garment, nor did any future as yet exist for them. They were in the beginning of their new creation. Did you see me on the rock? A question leapt at last from her. Were you trying to get away when I ran after you? I didn't see you, he replied. Not until I turned and you were quite close. How can you ask? I would never run from you. I must always follow you. Forever. Joanna had never listened to words of such penetrating sweetness. If I hadn't caught up on you, she said, I should have died. And I, said Lawrence, should never have lived. They went for shade down to the burn, and there they sat to talk. They talked till the afternoon drew in, but it seemed to them that they could never be done disclosing to each other the so widely differing courses of their two lives, which had yet converged at last. Joanna told about Gerald, her first love, who close by where they sat had skinned the wild birds, and about Alec Peddy's offer in this very spot, how Lawrence laughed at that, 
to show her what lads were for, and she talked of Mario and Italy and Aunt Purdy. Of Lewis she found she could not yet speak plainly. The reminiscent misery of that was still too raw. But when she told, as she did, of the secret garden door of La Porziuncola, and of all that love had meant to her, escape, adventure, excitement, learning, possession of the world, she found that Lawrence understood. She knew well that no corner of her life would be, or need ever be, kept from him. And when in turn, he told her of his life, she listened amazed. Where she had been as a field under the harrow, never left in peace, he had lived folded in upon himself. She knew now what he, and Carl too, had meant, when they reckoned him as the seed, and her as the clod of earth. For in her had lain his one means of escape, and she had denied him. Elsewhere he had been able neither to give nor to take, in any vital way, his essence and his treasure had lain hoarded up for her alone. In an interval of their talk, she laved her face in the stream, and they squatted gaily to share the food Lawrence had brought in his rucksack. When they had eaten it all, they fell silent at last. Joanna rested, leaning slackly against a beech trunk. Her hat was off, so that the long, unfastened braid of her hair hung fallen behind like a schoolgirl's, and round her forehead the smaller locks clung to the skin in damp rings. Except for the bright patch of sunburn where her linen blouse fell open at the neck, and a vivid stain on either forearm, she now looked cool as satin. How old are you? asked Lawrence out of the quietness. Thirty. I suppose you are. Why? she answered the wonder of his tone. How old do I look to you? No particular age, but you just look such a lassie, he said. Not weary and worn? Not now, at any rate. But sometimes, eh? When I look like a juggler, you remember? Yes, I've seen you so, and you looked horribly beautiful. All the same, I like best for you to be as you are now. You were meant to be all freshness. Yet one has to grow old and even middle-aged, and thirty is a good way towards it? She questioned wistfully. My love, you needn't be anxious. There is more youth in you, more real youth, than a girl of seventeen. I believe that is true, yet somehow I know it here with you now. She agreed simply, all her face bright. How old are you, Lawrence? Twenty-eight. So much younger than I, and yes, you look it, alas. Do you mind? Not really. I don't think so, at least. You shouldn't, he assured her. There was a time when I was too young for you. Heaps too young. But I've made up since then. Soon I shall be far older than you, though I hope not too old. Compare the shape of our heads. I am of an older race. What you have come through would have made tatters of me long ago. Physically I might have held out. I have a toughness of fibre. I found that out when I was ill but not a bit of freshness would have been left. If I had spent myself as you have, I could never have laughed as you laughed a moment ago. I'm a frail sort of being beside you, Joanna. You do make me sound a tough old thing, she protested. Not tough. Sturdy, he corrected her, 
like one of those sapling firs up there that shoot up all the stronger for being buffeted about by the wind. Later, they climbed the grey dyke and went swinging in true lover's rhythm down the hilly road toward the village where Carl would be waiting. As they came near it, they passed with their happiness between the new-scythed shocks of wheat that bent in their places meekly as if praying. Happy? asked Lawrence, breaking a long, unconscious silence. Joanna laughed quietly in response. I haven't thought, she admitted. But I have, though, said he, and I know you are by your voice. It is true, Lawrence, she replied. I think my heart never felt light till now. Nor mine either. See, the moon. Together at Joanna's cry they wheeled to look. Amid the flock of little clouds behind them, a young, misshapen moon had been speeding up unseen. Now each cloud, holding fast its own seed of darkness, floated apart in a pale, transparent spume of light. Like the seed of a passion flower, aren't they? murmured Joanna. Aye, no need to ask the moon if she is happy, Lawrence mused. She looks fulfilled, like a web of ripe seeds that has this moment been scattered. The End End of Section 32 End of Open the Door by Catherine Carswell